The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast, with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens-Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today we radiate healing and hope with Donald Altman, who is the author of the book, travelers. And Donald is a psychologist, a former monk, um, an award-winning author of over 20 books and CDs on mindfulness and spirituality. And he is an international mindfulness expert as well. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today, Donald. I appreciate having you. Oh, well, thanks, Christy. I, I really like what your show is doing and how it's helping radiate a positivity out there in the world. We do what we can. <laughs> and yeah. tell me a bit about your book, Travelers. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, you know, it's a book about um, healing and hope and renewal. And the main character is a psychiatrist. It's not me. People have read the book and said, oh, that's you, isn't it? And I said, no, this book is fiction. That's not me. Um, and and the character in the book has undergone uh, a, a deep loss. He has lost his daughter. And he's struggling to recover from this. And he's unable to really recover. And it's driven a wedge between he and his wife. So it's very much also a relationship story and how... Um, you know, how do you recover from something so devastating? Um, and what happens in the story, he meets this kind of mystical, magical traveler and who ends up being a guide to him and takes him on, on really on an unwanted mystical journey. He doesn't want to do this. He thinks you're losing your mind if you're experiencing other states of reality. And But he he ends up healing through the process. I don't want to give any of the story away. But uh, he also has to, you know, not just saving himself and his marriage, but also saving this young man who has come to the unit and has contacted a traveler. So it's uh, it's a very mystical story, but it's it's about how do we overcome uh, 
grief? How do we find healing? How do we find wholeness? Oh, well, so what is this? Who or what is this traveler? Where do they come from? Well, I kind of leave that a little open. I mean, we do talk in the book about angels and things like bilocation and all these things are happening in the story. And um, he's not sure, even the main character is not sure who is this traveler, except that uh, she is there to try to help him and try to guide him. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's really, if you think about it, that's what angels are. It's an energy that is here to help us. And and we're, sometimes we're just so busy in our heads with so many thoughts and, and you know, we're projecting our attention outward watching screens and things like that, that we're never able to create silence and stillness. And I think that's how we can really tune in better to that frequency. You can call it the angel frequency. You can call it the, in the book, I call it the quantum collective. But however you think oh. of it, uh, we need to find that that space within. That space within, I think that's beautiful. And uh, yes, this does sound very much like angelic uh contact input perhaps but does it really matter yeah that's the point i make it really doesn't you don't have to give it a name it's part of the great mystery and that's the beauty of it i think so too uh so how does this main character find his way past grief grief is such a heavy feeling well, it is a heavy feeling, and there isn't anybody. I've always said if you're in a human body and you have a human mind, you're going to experience loss. You're going to experience grief. And and so how do you not let that overwhelm you? And uh, in the story, you know, he is able to find kind of a middle way. He's able to open up and start to understand that there are still ways he can stay in touch with his daughter who died that she's really there with him still and at the same time move on with his life these are not mutually exclusive you don't have to have one or the other that grief we don't need to pathologize it and actually uh you know i'm a psychotherapist and in the field now there's a new diagnosis christy it's called prolonged grief disorder that if you don't heal your grief within a year you have this disorder and it's created a lot of controversy in the field a lot of experts in the grief field say well that's stigmatizing grief and i agree with that the good news of course is yeah the people can get treated and see somebody to help them with their grief but we don't want to stigmatize it and i think that sometimes uh grief can last a lifetime it's almost like a a letter of love and care for the one you lost right and you don't need to shut the door on that no it, we grieve because we love Absolutely. And I think greed, uh, I think grief, too, can actually plant the seeds of greater compassion and understanding just how precious each moment is that you know, even here we're we're sharing this moment together. We never know when this moment's going to come again or we'll be with somebody. And so to be with somebody with our full presence and to open up and to uh, express our kindness and our understanding with that person, that's probably one of the greatest gifts and to share uh, love with others is probably one of the greatest gifts we have as human beings. And that is why we're here for, as travelers, for example. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm going through a grief journey right now as well. I lost my dad last December. 
Oh, and, sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but getting support for that with other grievers is very helpful. And just knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, just as for your your character. That yeah, it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's a process, right? I mean, grief is a process, and everybody goes through it differently. In my in the story, travelers. Um, the room where his daughter had grown up is kept like a, you know, the wife doesn't want to change a thing. And it's there. He he calls it the shrine of Mel. Melissa was the name of the daughter. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's kept like a shrine. Uh, that means, you know, the wife is healing and grieving in a different way than he is. And, you know, how do they come to understand one another? It's very important. Oh, absolutely. And that can often tear couples apart. Oh, it can. And, and that's what's happening in their marriage in the story is they, um, they're getting close to separating. It looks like they're not going to make it. Mm-hmm. So then it's very much uh, a, a relationship story as well. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned losing your, your father. You know, I lost my, my mother was 99 when she passed away. Yeah. Amazing. She had a great life. Uh, there were, you know, struggles for her in her later years. But uh, after she died, I had wanted some kind of dream or wanted to know that somehow I could, you know, connect her, that she was contacting me. She was a wonderful spiritual spiritual teacher for me. And, um, and, and nothing, I didn't get anything. I was kind of wondering well, why you know why is that and then one morning as i was kind of you know kind of just kind of waking up not re- you know kind of in a dream but not a dream state i had a very vivid meeting with her it was not a dream but it was a vivid i sensed she was there with me we didn't speak but it was definitely her and her presence came through as if to say i'm okay and you know it's interesting because since that point in time uh there are a couple times when you know i i wanted to talk to her about things and what would she say and so i asked the question to her and i allowed myself and i definitely felt an answer it wasn't again it wasn't through words but it was through the body i felt i felt the answer and i think sometimes because we're so mentally focused and our, our minds are spinning. We're a very mental culture that we need to drop out of the mind and make some of these contacts uh, and to connect with those who are not with us. And it, it's important to really sense what's in the body. There's a whole other way of sensing and experiencing that's available for us. Right. I firmly believe that as well. Like the body is almost a sensor for what we need to know and what we need to <laughs> Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. I agree. Well, yeah, that just came to me. Um, and, and the truth is when we have our dream visits or visits from our loved ones, they feel more real than real. And we can feel their presence. Yeah, and that, maybe that's how we know that it's that that's a real um, connection with them. Oh, that's a very good point, right? Because that's it's like a thumbprint. It's unique. Yeah, yeah. The way they feel. So um, wonderful. This. So why did you decide to write Travelers? What was the impetus for you? Well, I have written about 20 nonfiction books, a lot of books about mindfulness and self-help, spirituality, and a lot of practical ways that people can find healing and 
kind of get out of their head and or and make friends with their mind. Mindfulness is, helps us not worry so much about a lot of distressing thoughts we might have, and we're able to change our perspective on that. But I wanted to reach people in a new way, and I felt I could share a story that um, would help people uh, experience healing through a fictional means of looking at this kind of fantastical story, which I couldn't have told in any way. In fact, it's funny, I tried to tell this story. I tried to write a nonfiction book about this. It didn't work. And I realized I had to try, I had to share this in a completely different container that people could understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a different container. I think the power of storytelling is quite important. Well, yeah, and that too, I think it's the, yeah, it's the power of, I wanted to, you know, I've been in the mental health field for a long time. And what I've seen is that a lot of times it's it's become very mechanical and it takes a very materialistic view of things and people are reduced into, you know, oh, you've got this diagnosis. And I don't believe that. I think that it's very constricting. It's, it's, it's putting people in a box and you... When you give somebody that diagnosis, people grab onto that and say, oh, that's who I am. <laughs> you can end your, end up defining yourself through a diagnosis. And I've had people say, oh, I'm, a de I'm depressive. I'm, you know, um, I'm an anxious person. I'm uh, schizophrenic. And they hold on to that label. And I think that's a disservice. So I understand why we need to do the diagnosis and it helps insurance companies have understand that they can yeah they can pay for this or that uh, but on the other hand uh, and and sometimes it can even help a clinician make sense of a case and help them see oh these are the symptoms this is maybe this is how i can treat that or work with that but i i think we have to be very judicious about helping the client understand or just even with ourselves not to label ourselves right mm -hmm. and and so that was the other thing I wanted to show in this story was that there was a, we need to bring spirituality. We need to bring a deeper meaning and purpose into our understanding of who we are, if we're going to heal. So just going in because you have a depression and, oh, I, I've got to get rid of this depression. Oh, here, take this medicine. And I'm not saying medicines don't help, but we need to dig deeper and start to understand ourselves at a deeper level and say, why? Um, are these patterns or why is this happening to me and what's around me that might be causing this? You know, there was a great uh, teacher in the last century named Krishnamurti. Mm -hmm. And he said, it is no measure of health to be, uh, to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, if you're a fish swimming in a dirty bowl of water, you don't really know that, that, water is dirty so we need to cleanse ourselves we need to do purification and ways of healing and uh, getting the right amount of sleep getting uh, protein throughout the day that helps our uh, thinking part of the brain the frontal cortex work so i think there are a lot of things we need to do and we need to have some silence we need to reflect to sit back and just you know be with ourselves, be with our thoughts be with our feelings and that can help us connect with others. Right. Absolutely amazing. Now, is the theme of mental health present in travelers? 
Oh, absolutely. Because this psychiatrist character, he, um, and I guess maybe this is where I brought a, a part of myself into the story. Is he, he, uh, he wants to have a better way of working with people. And he's not happy that that everything's gotten kind of manualized and and, uh, and and kind of mechanized in the mental health system. I mean, and so what I did was when I bring people into the um, the hospital, the psych ward, uh, it's very realistic. Actually, I've worked uh, many years in psychiatric clinics um, in uh, in hospital settings, but they're inpatient. Uh, intensive out where they were called intensive outpatient settings. Now this is a residential in the story, but I made sure that it's very accurate. And uh, so I wanted to bring people into this world. What's it like to go into one of those places, <laughs> right? And what's the the process like? Of how do you how are you treated in there? And he starts uh, being a he's actually gets accused of being too close to this one young man who he's trying to work with. Because he doesn't want to stigmatize him and give him a um, like a schizophrenic schizophrenic um, diagnosis, and uh, the kid comes from a troubled family, and we we also see that as part of the story about how family dynamics can affect somebody, and so uh, yeah, it's a it's kind of a complex story, and a lot of things are happening in there. Uh, and there's some suspense in the story too. I should say is, is this, you know, he has to kind of save this young man from a life of what could be institutionalized care. Right, right. Now you mentioned schizophrenia. Um, is it appropriate to medicate schizophrenia? Do people need that? A lot of people do need that. Um, now, back many years ago, uh, some of the medications that were used were very powerful. I think it's a better. Um, you know, schizophrenia is in about one to one and a half percent of the population. It's kind of pretty rare. But um, what happens is the, this medication of somebody's hallucinating. And those hallucinations can be so powerful that they can't really function well in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So the new class of medications affect the dopamine receptors in the brain and um, kind of just tap that down. So there might be some awareness of those, you know, voices or hallucinations, but they're not impeding your ability to operate in this reality. Right. Now, I think in a very, very small number of cases, there are uh, awakening experiences that might be happening. Um, but Mental health professionals in general aren't able to distinguish or really figure that out. Now, I had an experience when I was in my 20s. I experienced a major depressive disorder. And it was like, um, gosh, it was like a thousand pounds of weight on my body. I couldn't move. I was uh, just in a very uh, immobilized kind of a state. And it was from trauma that I'd experienced growing up. And... Uh, when it happened to me, uh, fortunately, I had a real good therapist who I worked with. Um, but at the time, I started for the first time having these out-of-body experiences and um, what I would call really visions of what I think were reincarnation experiences. And 
I it gave me a sense of relief, actually. And I never told the the therapist I was seeing. He was a psychiatrist. I never told him it was probably a good thing. <laughs> but when it first started to happen to me, I remember feeling because it was like a a rumble in my head that like a freight train is going through your head just shaking you and i came to later realize that i could move this energy that it was my life energy i had really no other way to experience to, to really describe it and um and then i could this energy would allow me to leave the body yeah. and or experience some of these visions and it gave me a sense and they were you know fleeting things they didn't last for a long period of time but it let me experience that you know this depression i'm experiencing here is not it's not the whole story about who i am there's mm -hmm. more to me there's more to all of us we are expansive beings we can operate in this reality but there's another way to connect outside that science really hasn't explored or doesn't shine its light on so they don't understand it but it exists and um so even though it was fleeting it it was like an escape valve in some way it let me see these other uh transcendental connections between things and and i think it helped in my healing uh you know and so i think what we can do is appreciate that we will you know spiritual initiation can take many different forms and looking back on it for me that was a spiritual initiation right um a time after that i asked somebody who i knew who was a neurologist i described some of these things and said what would you say to a patient who was experiencing this and he'd say well he said they're having epileptic seizures and they need to be given these drugs and so I was really glad that I never told anybody <laughs> back then about what was happening but I but it didn't um you know it wasn't persistent it wasn't in my face it wasn't stopping me from living my life and so that's the difference with schizophrenia um it's a very these are very powerful hallucinations that people have Mm -hmm. uh, and often sometimes paranoia, delusions. So, um, and the medication doesn't really um, minimize delusions, but it minimizes a lot of the symptoms and allows people to um, operate more fully in their lives. Right. Now, I think that absolutely medication is something that is very helpful for people. If it's warranted and it helps, I, I don't see anything wrong with it. I've taken antidepressants in the past and it really helped. And I see no harm or shame in that. We'll take a an aspirin or an ibuprofen if we have a headache. And it's I I don't think there's any problem with this at uh, all. Yeah, I agree with you. And for for those people who um you know, for some people they can do the, you know, they use medication and they learn skills that help them. And it's kind of a balance. It's, you know, it's not mutually exclusive that you can only do one or the other. You can do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And it usually works better that way if you can, you know, use medication plus something else. Um, uh, it can help. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you know that Radiate Wellness is more than just a podcast? That's right. We're also a comprehensive holistic wellness practice. Find out about our services, practitioners, and upcoming events at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a coworker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind, please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now... Back to our podcast and back to our guest. Right. Now, let's turn to um, your experience as a monk. You're not the first monk I've had, or a former monk, I should say, on the podcast, but it's it's always interesting to me. So what tradition were you in? This was in the Theravada tradition. This is the old school of Buddhism. Uh, and Theravada Buddhism is in Laos, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, uh, Thailand, and Burma. So those are the countries where it's still uh, the the main Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So it's the old school of Buddhism, and, uh, you know, the, but they're all kind of similar, all the different schools, really, they're all teaching love and kindness, compassion. And I went into the, I never could have imagined I would end up or go to a monastery and ordain. But there was a friend of mine that said, oh, there's a monk I'd like you to meet. And I met this monk, and I had never experienced anybody, Christy, who had this kind of compassion and availability. It was so palpable mm-hmm. that just it was it it drew you in, right? I mean, um, and I grew up in Chicago and in kind of a tough neighborhood. I didn't find people like that on the street corners in Chicago or anywhere. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, I had wondered when I, after I met her, I was like, wow, how does somebody become like that? It really piqued my curiosity. Not too long after that, I experienced a, uh, you know, a, a negative pattern that kept recurring in my life. You know, and we find this in life. If you find that, you know, certain things keep repeating, whether it's in relationships or whether it's in how you deal with certain aspects of your life, there's probably uh, some patterning there or some 
some you know deep belief system or schema that's operating that you're um, keep falling into these same patterns. So when this happened, it was very painful, and and so I thought, well, I need to find, and I you know I'd gone to therapy before, which was helpful, but I felt I needed to look more deeply within myself to somehow decipher and get to the root of this. And I found out at that time that I could ordain as a monk in a monastery where uh, Uthilananda, that was his name, a well-known teaching monk from Burma, uh, came to the U.S. in the late 70s, but that uh, I could ordain with him as the head of the monastery. And I thought, that's great. I'll be able to maybe talk to him, learn how did he become this person who he is, and maybe I can uh, delve more deeply into my own psyche. So uh, I ordained, it was just a really incredible experience for me. Um, uh, and they were all Burmese monks. It was in Southern California near the San Bernardino Mountains, but they were all a uh, small Burmese uh, monastery supported by a, a Burmese community. So, you know, the monks you know, traditionally uh, in India or these other countries would go out and, and you know, with a little black alms bowl and go collect food every day. Uh, but here the community would bring us food. And it was really amazing. It was a, a great sense of humility. And it opened my eyes to the fact how, you know, we think we're also independent, but we're very dependent on others in everything we do. Uh, the food on our table uh, comes from all these the different energy from people from the sun all over the place that brings it to the you know cultivates it harvests it cares for it processes it packages it ships it gets it to the store you know if you ask most people where does your food come from well people say oh, i get the grocery store well no, no. <laughs> and so um it's it just you know, having people offer that food and realizing that, wow, this community is supporting us, you know, and, and it made me see how connected we all were. But I was able to talk with Uthi Lananda and ask him about um, how did he become the person he was. And he never directly answered it, but what I learned was he loved teaching the loving kindness and compassion meditation. That was the thing he loved more than anything. And I think he must have practiced that so many hours. And there's actually, I found research later on, many years later, that that's that uh, said that if you do thousands of hours of this training, it actually transforms your brain. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Richard Davidson, who's the head of the uh, invest. Uh, uh, it's called Investigating Healthy Minds. It's on the, you can find it on the web. He's director of that. It's at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And he's put the Dalai Lama's monks under MRIs, people who have done maybe 10,000 hours of compassion, loving kindness training, and their brains are not like uh, a normal person's brain. <laughs> There's high amplitude gamma waves, which are thought to be a high functioning uh, brain. They're just they're dramatically different, but the potential 
for each of us to be this uh, you know amazing loving compassionate being is within each of us yes that is amazing how long did you spend in the monastery you know i i wasn't in the monastery uh for a real long time i think it's a matter of how ripe you are for the experience i was very ripe <laughs> and so it's you know it's it's how ready are you for the experience i was in there that's probably you know just a matter of months but i knew always knew that my time was going to be out in the world and that's uh that was more important to me i think was knowing that i what the work that i would do out here but uh and i stayed connected with the monks and one of the monks uh became a very good friend of mine and we he continued actually to teach me different uh practices even after i left the monastery mm -hmm. um, but it's amazing it was like a rebirth in a sense so you go in they give you a new name and uh you know you kind of shed your old persona and your old identity and you kind of getting an, a fresh look at things right and mm -hmm. the practice of the meditation you do is to start to not grab on to or identify with your thoughts so strongly i think that was a big message that i got was my thoughts are not i am not my thoughts right yeah that's that's a game changer right there oh yeah yeah because mm -hmm. if you identify with those thoughts and i'd like to your listeners to think for a moment how many thoughts have you had today you, could you count them <laughs> probably not I mean there's thousands and I think the average person has at least a minimum of 20,000 thoughts per day and how many of those thoughts tell you something really profound about who you are as a person okay. right or are helpful thoughts <laughs> uh, most are toxic or just habitual thoughts conditioned thoughts and you know uh, they've even shown if we're just sitting sitting not really working on anything not focused our mind will just start spinning and and we'll just pop up distressing thoughts randomly we'll just have those That's uh, true. but if you but if you grab on to uh a thought that's not a, a helpful thought that may be um a blaming thought or a shaming thought that can pull you in a different direction and that's how we end up with uh, depression and anxiety you know we end up having those thoughts pull us along we start thinking about them over and over and over and our brain hardwires to those thoughts so that's why getting into the present moment very powerfully and that's what i've really done in all my work and all my books and that's what ben learns in travelers he learns how to get still and he's actually guided in the book to uh get into this present moment and when he does it his fear all the fear he has in life drops away and he's able to open up and experience love it's beautiful so how do we stay focused on the the positive thoughts that take us in the in the other way yeah well one thing we can do is we can think about the things that uh nourish us and sustain us and support us in our life and that's really just a very simple practice of gratitude it changes our attitude about things and it helps us focus more on as you're saying the positive things so there are several different kinds of gratitude gratitude actually comes from an ancient word gratitudo which mm -hmm. means uh 
to find what is pleasing during mealtime. So originally it was had to do with grace at mealtime. <laughs> it's interesting. But so finding gratitude is to find anything that, you know, can support you. Right now, for example, you know, you're sitting, I can see you have a nice sofa there. And so, and I'm in a nice chair, I'm being supported. Well, I can be grateful for that. When I take this next breath, how wonderful that I can breathe, that my lungs are working, that I can take this nice breath. These are kind of basic gratitudes, things that are very basic, you know, having clothes, having shelter, water, food. These are things that if we didn't have them, our lives would be great suffering, if not impossible. So we have basic gratitudes. We have gratitudes related to health. So, you know, we have a certain amount of health and and well-being in our life. We can be grateful for that. We can be grateful for relation. There's relational gratitude, right? All the people, our pets, and everybody who adds and enriches our life. Um, there's personal gratitude. You could think of even as, you know, the career that you have, the things that you have, transportation, and if you have a, a vehicle or however you other things that help benefit you in your life is are things that you personally have. And there's even something called paradoxical gratitude. This is being grateful for the things you wish you didn't have in your life. So let me explain that. So uh, I was doing a workshop one time and we we're talking about paradoxical gratitude. A lady's hand shot up and she says, Oh, I've got a good, you know, and I asked if people could share. And she said, oh, uh, you know, I was in a tornado. She was in the Midwest. I, and I know you you get a lot of tornadoes oh, down there. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and she said, I lost my house. My house just was flattened. And but a miraculously, nobody was hurt. And, you know, I she said, I always thought that I was on my own and um, had to fight through things and Life was a challenge, a struggle. She said, but all these people in the community who I never knew came to my aid. And she said, I realized I wasn't alone. That was the greatest gift I could have gotten. She said, if that tornado hadn't happened I, and I hadn't lost my house like that, I never would have known how many people were really there for me. And it changed my life. That's amazing. That's, yeah. So that's the paradoxical gratitude. I can think of it as silver lining gratitude. What's the silver lining? And even something that's difficult or a challenge for you, the silver lining is something, maybe that lesson you learned or that little thing, that unexpected gift that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm going to start using that and looking for it. Paradoxical gratitude is beautiful. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So you've written many books on the subjects of mindfulness, kindness, um, things that have to do with um well-being and and mindfulness um so can you tell us a bit about the other books that you've written sure sure um one of my newer books is called simply mindful a seven-week course and personal handbook for mindful living and if somebody is really interested in understanding mindfulness kind of and kind of training yourself you know it's and again Maybe it's not for everybody. For those people, though, who want to really understand it, that book is filled with like over like three dozen exercises and practices in there. And it talks about the ancient ideas of mindfulness, the modern 
ideas of mindfulness. So it really steeps you. I mean, if you were going to teach a course about mindfulness, you'd probably want to have this book. <laughs> and so, nice. but I, yeah, and 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 it and so I even talk about the ancient meaning of mindfulness, which is the Sanskrit word sati, which originally meant self-remembrance and uh, self-recollection. So it's about bringing the fragmented parts of ourselves, finding the wholeness within ourselves. And uh, so this book brings together really all the many, many years of teaching I've had, and I've gotten to see mindfulness from a uh, you know many, many different perspectives. So it kind of brings it all together. So it's it's um I think it'd be a very helpful book for people. One minute mindfulness is it's kind of, you want to stick your toe, you want to into mindfulness, you want to see what is it like to be mindful at different times of the day, in the morning, while you're eating at night, different, you know, every page is a little different experience with mindfulness and a little practice that you can do. Very simple way to kind of get into mindfulness. That's one minute mindfulness. Um the mindfulness toolbox, which is um, really was a bestseller in the psychology field, and a lot of uh, mental health counselors have it. So there's detailed uh, experiences in there, detailed handouts, things that you can do. I mean, mental health uh, practitioners use this book and give the handouts to clients. But if you were dealing with stress, anxiety, depression, this would be a good book for anybody who just wants to get some detailed practices that they can use. So there's breathing practices, there's there's uh, gratitude practices, finding your strengths, which mm -hmm. is an important practice. So a lot of things like that are in this book. And that's that's probably, um, uh, like I say, it was, a, and it won two national book awards. So I'm really um, happy about the, the way that book turned out. That is wonderful. Um, and I noticed that much of your work is geared toward people in healthcare and mental health. Wow. Well, yeah, yeah. And well, a lot of them are just for the average person, like um, the mindfulness code or clearing emotional clutter, which brings in the ideas of epigenetics about how our um, how we react to things actually changes our expression, the expression of our genes. Moment by moment, this is the incredible thing. It's why there's a lot of interesting science in there about the brain, epigenetics, and how we can, you know, uh, clear out the clutter in our lives. And I also, even in that book, Clearing Emotional Clutter, talk about fidelity to the moment, right? Mm -hmm. Bringing a sense of, of uh, commitment to being here right now. Yeah. And that can be very healing just to do that. Absolutely. These are great practices and so easy for people to understand and take with them and put into practice. Yeah, that was my goal was to how do I make these things so that they really work for people and they can integrate them into their lives very easily. I have a practice called the GLAD practice that I think is in several of my books, G-L-A-D. It's an acronym and it's a practice for bringing in the positive into your life every day. The G stands for gratitude. L means learning. What one thing have I learned today? The A is an accomplishment. What one thing I've been accomplished today or uh, and an accomplishment, by the way, doesn't have to be that big thing. It could be that one little thing you do that is 
positive for yourself. And D is delight. What one thing of delight did I see today? And I'll tell you, I've had people with severe depression who I've given this very simple practice to who have come back. I remember one gentleman who has had was really struggling, and it was in the winter here in Portland. It's rainy, it's dreary. And he came back to me and he said, I, and I said, so tell me about that glad practice. How did that go for you? And he said, wow. He said, when I got to the D, he said, I heard a bird chirping. And it reminded me of springtime and it gave me hope. Ooh. Yeah. So it got him out of his head and got him, it, it gave him a structure for looking around and being present. Wow. So that is glad. One G, one thing I'm grateful for. What is the L again? The L is one thing I've learned today. Either I learned something from another person or maybe I learned something about myself. Right? Right. Yeah. And the A is an accomplishment. And I think even, you know, getting enough sleep or getting enough, uh, uh, even getting dressed in the morning, I think is a, an accomplishment. You did a very nice job. I can see, <laughs> you know, I think getting dressed in the morning is highly underrated. Think about it. You have to, <laughs> you have to uh, consciously uh, take action. You have to make decisions. You have to have follow through. So you know, we don't often give ourselves credit for the little things that we do. So that's an accomplishment. Right. And then, again, the last thing is delight. One thing that brings you a sense of joy. One thing that makes you smile, makes you laugh. Oh, uh, and and tuning into all of these throughout the day. Oh, I I love that. That's such a simple practice, and it's so so fun. <laughs> yeah, I have people. It's interesting. I have people who this is really kind of taken off. But I've had people who uh, share uh, the glad with their family at the dinner table, or maybe one they you know what was your glad for today, and they get to hear everybody's story. Or maybe one person takes the G, one takes the L, one takes the A, one takes the D. And um, I have people who have written me and said, you know, they use the GLAD as kind of a bookend for the day. They'll do it in the morning uh, when they wake up and they'll do it at night before they go to bed. Ooh, I really, really like this. You know, during this podcast, I hear so many acronyms and so many different practices. But this one is super simple and so positive. I love oh, it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And the acronym says it, GLAD. <laughs> I mean, I think that you can get GLAD as you start to practice this. Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, you also have webinars. You have meditations available. Um, I'm looking at actually at your website, which is Mindfulness Practices. Or my, Mindful Practices. Practice. Sorry, yeah. mindfulpractices.com. <laughs> And um, I'll put that in the, the show notes, of course, mindfulpractices.com. Um, but I noticed that Travelers is looks like the only fiction that you've written. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, I, I've, you know, I've just written a lot of self-help books. Uh, now, years ago, I did. I worked for a children's TV show. I have written fiction in the past. I worked for a children's TV show. It was a locally produced show in, uh, from CBS in Chicago. We actually won a couple of Emmy Awards for that. And and I had a short fiction film produced. And so I've had uh, written fiction before. 
but um, not for a long time and not as a novel. So it was, it was really fun to get into the characters. And for me, I wanted the, char the characters kind of drew, pulled me along. I came along for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that from other fiction writers too. It's like, oh yeah, just took off. <laughs> you have any they other, were, what's up? You know, they wrote the book. I didn't, the characters did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have any other novels in you? Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about uh, a couple different ideas. So I may do a sequel to Travelers. I may uh, have another idea as well. Right. I mean, it, I could see it being a series with different travelers helping different people. Well, yeah, yeah. It's funny because people have already said to me, say, well, when are you going to do the sequel? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Again, the book is Travelers. Um, is there anything else that you think is important for our audience, our listeners to know that we haven't talked about? Well, just to appreciate your own courage in life. Uh, life can be a challenge, but I think we're here to learn and to grow and to help others. And you know, if you can do that, if you can just be with the next person you meet, with a sense of openness and kindness. Wow, what a gift you're bringing into the world. Oh, that's so true. That is so true. Well, Donald, thank you so much for joining me today. And when you get the sequel to Travelers out or whatever your next book is, I'd love to have you back. Oh, well, thanks, Christy. I've really been a pleasure being here with you today. And and I can just sense your positive positivity that you're radiating outward and so uh that keep doing that good work well we do what we can right yeah that's right <laughs>Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.